This month is all Edgar Allan Poe on Blacklock Audio Tales. Up first, Edgar Allan Poe, Death of Edgar Allan Poe, The Unparalleled Adventures of One Hans Flau, The Gold Bug, Four Beasts in One, The Homo Camel Leopard, Murders and the Rue Morgue, The Mystery of Mary Roget, the Balloon Hoax, Miss Found in a Bottle, The Oval Portrait. Blacklock Audio Tales is brought to you by BunnySlippers.com and FoundItemClothing.com. It's still cold outside in a lot of places. Why don't you get some of those dino sound slippers? Walk around, make dino sounds. It's super fun. Be a clown. Get some of those cool t-shirts that they have all around at founditemclothing.com. Look like your favorite cool guy from your favorite 80s movie. Or maybe a bad guy from an 80s movie if that's your thing too. Or just, do you like t-shirts that celebrate cult films from the 80s and 90s? Founditemclothing.com, you should go with them. And while we're talking about people, a quick shout out to Monster Kid Radio. Monster Kid Radio, Google it. Search for it online. Uh, Zach Ferguson, look for the show notes for Articulate Warbling, a podcast I produce. Let's see, what else? Um, search for Twisted Pulp Radio, I think it is what it's called. And Twisted Pulp Radio, Twisted Pulp Show. Anyway, it's a pulp radio show produced out of some radio station in California, and I lend some voice talents to that occasionally okay what else do we have in the show notes dave's corner of the universe check out dave's corner of the universe by just simply searching for dave's corner of the universe there's no other dave's corners of the universe out there and also listen for dave's little specials here and there on black clock audio tales and also dave's underground goat shenanigans which just had a christmas special drop and hopefully we'll have its episode one happen within the month of January. So we'll see when all that happens. It's going to be super cool. And also, don't forget to follow Black Clock Audio Tales on social media. Just look for PGTTCM. That's the website, PGTTCM.com, for People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos, our monthly Cthulhu Mythos show that, oh, unfortunately, we just had a reading last month, but hey, this month, we're going to go back to having an episode. And also, let's not forget that you can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at PGTTCM, or look for Black Clock Audio Tales if that doesn't work. And let's not forget you are wonderful, and I think you're great. Okay. Recording by Christine in Oslo, Norway. The Works of Edgar Allan Poe, Raven Edition, Volume 1. The Murders in the Rue Morgue, Part 2. I took the pistols, scarcely knowing what I did, or believing what I heard, while Dupin went on, very much as if in a soliloquy. I have already spoken of his abstract manner at such times. 
His discourse was addressed to myself, but his voice, although by no means loud, had that intonation which is commonly employed in speaking to someone at a great distance. His eyes, vacant in the expression, regarded only the wall. That the voices heard in contentation, he said, by the party upon the stairs, were not the voices of the women themselves, was fully proved by the evidence. This relieves us of all doubt upon the question whether the old lady could have first destroyed the daughter and afterward have committed suicide. I speak of this point chiefly for the sake of method, for the strength of Madame L'Espanier would have been utterly unequal to the task of thrusting her daughter's corpse up the chimney as it was found, and the nature of the wounds upon her own person entirely preclude the idea of self-destruction. Murder, then, has been committed by some third party, and the voices of this third party were those heard in contention. Let me now advert, not to the whole testimony respecting these voices, but to what was peculiar in that testimony. Did you observe anything peculiar about it? I remarked that, while all the witnesses agreed in supposing the gruff voice to be that of a Frenchman, there was much disagreement in regard to the shrill, or, as one individual termed it, the harsh voice. That was the evidence itself, said Dupois, but it was not the peculiarity of the evidence. You have observed nothing distinctive, yet there was something to be observed. The witnesses, as you remark, agreed about the gruff voice, they were here unanimous. The peculiarity is, not that they disagreed, but that, while an Italian, an Englishman, a Spaniard, a Hollander, and a Frenchman attempted to describe it, each one spoke of it as that of a foreigner. Each is sure that it was not the voice of one of his own countrymen. Each likens it not to the voice of an individual of any nation with whose language he is conversant, but the converse. The Frenchman supposes it the voice of a Spaniard, and might have distinguished some words had he been acquainted with the Spanish. The Dutchman maintains it to have been that of a Frenchman. But we find it stated that, not understanding French, this witness was examined through an interpreter. The Englishman thinks it the voice of a German, and does not understand German. The Spaniard is sure that it was that of an Englishman, but judges by the intonation altogether, as he has no knowledge of the English. The Italian believes it the voice of a Russian, but has never conversed with a native of Russia. A second Frenchman differs, moreover, with the first, and is positive that the voice was that of an Italian, but, not being cognizant of that tongue, is, like the Spaniard, convinced by the intonation. Now, how strangely unusual must that voice have really been, about which such testimony as this could have been elicited? In whose tones, even, denizens of the five great divisions of Europe could recognize nothing familiar? You will say that it might have been the voice of an Asiatic, of an African. Neither Asiatics nor Africans abound in Paris, but, without denying the inference, I will now merely call your attention to three points. The voice is termed by one witness harsh rather than shrill. It is represented by two others who have been quick and unequal. No words, no sounds resembling words, were by any witness mentioned as distinguishable. I know not, 
continued Dupois, what impression I may have made, so far, upon your own understanding, but I do not hesitate to say that legitimate deductions even from this portion of the testimony, the portion respecting the gruff and shrill voices, are in themselves sufficient to engender a suspicion which should give direction to all farther progress in the investigation of the mystery. I said legitimate deductions, but my meaning is not thus fully expressed. I designed to imply that the deductions are the sole proper ones, and that the suspicion arises inevitably from them as the single result. What the suspicion is, however, I will not say just yet. I merely wish you to bear in mind that, with myself, it was sufficiently forcible to give a definitive form, a certain tendency, to my inquiries in the chamber. Let us now transport ourselves, in fancy, to this chamber. What shall we first seek there? The means of egress employed by the murderers. It is not too much to say that neither of us believe in pre-natural events. Madame and Mademoiselle L'Espanier were not destroyed by spirits. The doers of the deed were material, and escaped materially. Then how? Fortunately, there is but one mode of reasoning upon the point, and that mode must lead us to a definitive decision. Let us examine, each by each, the possible means of aggress. It is clear that the assassins were in the room where Mademoiselle L'Espanier was found, or at least in the room adjoining when the party ascended the stairs. It is then only from these two apartments that we have to seek issues. The police have laid bare the floors, the ceilings, and the masonry of the walls in every direction. No secret issues could have escaped their vigilance. But, not trusting to their eyes, I examined with my own. There were, then, no secret issues. Both doors leading from the rooms into the passage were securely locked, with the keys inside. Let us turn to the chimneys. These, although of ordinary width, for some eight or ten feet above the hearts, will not admit, throughout their extent, the body of a large cat. The impossibility of egress, by means already stated, being thus absolute, we are reduced to the windows. Through those of the front room, no one could have escaped without notice from the crowd in the street. The murderers must have passed, then, through those of the back room. Now, brought to this conclusion in so unequivocal a manner as we are, it is not our part, as reasoners, to reject it on account of apparent impossibilities. It is only left for us to prove that these apparent impossibilities are, in reality, not such. There are two windows in the chamber. One of them is unobstructed by furniture, and is wholly visible. The lower portion of the other is hidden from view by the head of the unwieldy bedstead, which is thrust close up against it. The former was found securely fastened from within. It resisted the outmost force of those who endeavoured to raise it. A large gimlet hole had been pierced in its frame to the left, and a very stout nail was found fitted therein nearly to the head. Upon examining the other window, a similar nail was seen similarly fitted in it, and a vigorous attempt to raise this sash failed also. The police were now entirely satisfied that aggress had not been in these directions, and, therefore, it was thought a matter of supererogation to withdraw the nails and open the windows.' 
my own examination was somewhat more particular, and was so for the reason I have just given, because here it was, I knew, that all apparent impossibilities must be proved to be not such in reality. I proceed to think thus, a posteriori, the murderers did escape from one of these windows. This being so, they could not have refastened the sashes from the inside, as they were found fastened. The consideration which put a stop, through its obviousness, to the scrutiny of the police in this quarter. Yet the sashes were fastened. They must, then, have the power of fastening themselves. There was no escape from this conclusion. I stepped to the unobstructed casement, withdrew the nail with some difficulty, and attempted to raise the sash. It resisted all my efforts, as I had anticipated. A concealed spring must, I know now, exist, and this corroboration of my idea convinced me that my premises, at least, were correct, however mysterious still appeared the circumstances attending the nails. A careful search soon brought to the light the hidden spring. I pressed it, and, satisfied with the discovery, forbore to upraise the sash. I now replaced the nail and regarded it attentively. A person passing out through this window might have reclosed it, and the spring would have caught, but a nail could not have been replaced. The conclusion was plain, and again narrowed in the field of my investigations. The assassins must have escaped through the other window. Supposing, then, the springs upon each sash to be the same, as was probable, there must be found a difference between the nails, or at least between the modes of their fixture. Getting upon the sacking of the bedstead, I looked over the headboard minutely at the second casement. Passing my hand down behind the board, I readily discovered and pressed the spring, which was, as I had supposed, identical in character with its neighbour. I now looked at the nail. It was as stout as the other, and apparently fitted in the same manner, driven in nearly up to the head. You will say that I was puzzled, but, if you think so, you must have misunderstood the nature of the inductions. To use a sporting phrase, I had not been once at fault. The scent had never for an instant been lost. There was no flaw in any link of the chain. I had traced the secret to its ultimate result, and that result was the nail. It had, I say, in every respect the appearance of its fellow in the other window, but this fact was an absolute nullity conclusive as it might seem to be, when compared with the consideration that here, at this point, terminated the clue. There must be something wrong, I said, about the nail. I touched it, and the head, with about a quarter of an inch of the shank, came off in my fingers. The rest of the shank was in the gimlet hole, where it had been broken off. The fracture was an old one, for its edges were encrusted with rust and had apparently been accomplished by the blow of a hammer, which had partially embedded, in the top of the bottom sash, the head portion of the nail. I now carefully replaced this head portion in the indentation whence I had taken it, and the resemblance to a perfect nail was complete. The fissure was invisible. Pressing the spring, I gently raised the sash for a few inches. The head went up with it, remaining firm in its bed. I closed the window, and the semblance of the whole nail was again perfect. The riddle, so far, was now unriddled. The assassin had escaped through the window which looked upon the bed. 
dropping of its own accord upon his exit, or perhaps purposely closed. It had become fastened by the spring, and it was the retention of this spring which had been mistaken by the police for that of the nail. Farther inquiry being thus considered unnecessary. The next question is that of the mode of descent. Upon this point I had been satisfied in my walk with you around the building. About five feet and a half from the casement in question, there runs a lightning rod. From this rod, it would have been impossible for anyone to reach the window itself, to say nothing of entering it. I observed, however, that the shutters of the fourth story were of the peculiar kind called by Parisian carpenters ferradas, a kind rarely employed at the present day, but frequently seen upon very old mansions at Lyons and Bordeaux. They are in the form of an ordinary door, a single, not a folding door, except that the lower half is latticed or worked in open trellis, thus affording an excellent hold for the hands. In the present instance, these shutters are fully three feet and a half broad. When we saw them from the rear of the house, they were both about half open. That is to say, they stood off at right angles from the wall. It is probable that the police, as well as myself, examined the back of the tenement, but, if so, in looking at these ferradas in the line of their breath, as they must have done, they did not perceive this great breath itself, or, at all events, failed to take it into due consideration. In fact, having once satisfied themselves that no egress could have been made in this quarter, they would naturally bestow here a very cursory examination. It was clear to me, however, that the shutter belonging to the window at the head of the bed would, if swung fully back to the wall, reach to within two feet of the lightning rod. It was also evident that, by exertion of a very unusual degree of activity and courage, an entrance into the window from the rod might have been thus effected. By reaching to the distance of two feet and a half, we now suppose the shutter open to its whole extent, a robber might have taken a firm grasp upon the trellis work. Letting go, then, his hold upon the rod, placing his feet securely against the wall, and springing bodily from it, he might have swung the shutter so as to close it, and, if we imagine the window open at the time, might even have swung himself into the room. I wish you to bear especially in mind that I have spoken of a very unusual degree of activity as requisite to success in so hazardous and so difficult a feat. It is my design to show you, first, that the thing might possibly have been accomplished, but, secondly, and chiefly, I wish to impress upon your understanding the very extraordinary, the almost pre-natural character of that agility which could have accomplished it. You will say, no doubt, using the language of the law, that, to make out my case, I should rather undervalue than insist upon a full estimation of the activity required in this matter. This may be the practice in law, but it is not the usage of reason. My ultimate object is only the truth. My immediate purpose is to lead you to place in juxtaposition the very unusual activity of which I have just spoken with that very peculiar shrill, or harsh, and unequal voice, about whose nationality no two persons could be found to agree, and in whose utterance no syllabification could be detected. At these words, a vague and half-formed conception of the meaning of Dupois flitted over my mind. I seemed to be upon the verge of comprehension without power to comprehend. Men, at times, 
find themselves upon the brink of remembrance without being able, in the end, to remember. My friend went on with his discourse. "'You will see,' he said, "'that I have shifted the question from the mode of egress to that of ingress. It was my design to convey the idea that both were effected in the same manner, at the same point. Let us now revert to the interior of the room. Let us survey the appearances here. The drawers of the bureau, it is said, had been rifled, although many articles of apparel still remained within them. The conclusion here is absurd. It is a mere guess, a very silly one, and no more. How are we to know that the articles found in the drawers were not all these drawers had originally contained? Madame L'Espanier and her daughter lived an exceedingly retired life, saw no company, seldom went out, had little use for numerous changes of habiliment. Those found were at least of as good quality as any likely to be possessed by these ladies. If a thief had taken any, why did he not take the best? Why did he not take all? In a word, why did he abandon four thousand francs in gold, to encumber himself with a bundle of linen? The gold was abandoned. Nearly the whole sum mentioned by Monsieur Mignot, the banker, was discovered in bags upon the floor. I wish you, therefore, to discard from your thoughts the blundering idea of motive, engendered in the brains of the police by that portion of the evidence which speaks of money delivered at the door of the house. Coincidences ten times as remarkable as this, the delivery of the money and murder committed within three days upon the party receiving it, happen to all of us every hour of our lives, without attracting even momentarily notice. Coincidences, in general, are great stumbling-blocks in the way of that class of thinkers who have been educated to know nothing of the theory of probabilities, that theory of which the most glorious objects of human research are indebted for the most glorious of illustration. In the present instance, had the gold been gone, the fact of its delivery three days before would have formed something more than a coincidence. It would have been corroborative of this idea of motive, but, under the real circumstances of the case, if we are to suppose gold the motive of this outrage, we must also imagine the perpetrator so vacillating an idiot as to have abandoned his gold and his motive together. Keeping now steadily in mind the points to which I have drawn your attention, that peculiar voice, that unusual agility, and that startling absence of motive in a murder so singularly atrocious as this, let us glance at the butchery itself. Here is a woman, strangled to death by manual strength, and thrust up a chimney, head downward. Ordinary assassins employ no such modes of murder as this. Least of all, do they thus dispose of the murdered. In the manner of thrusting the corpse up the chimney, you will admit that there was something excessively outré, something altogether irreconcilable with our common notions of human action, even when we suppose the actors the most depraved of men. Think, too, how great must have been that strength which would have thrust the body up such an aperture so forcibly that the united figure of several persons was found barely sufficient to drag it down. Turn now to other indications of the employment of a vigor most marvellous. On the heart were thick tresses, very thick tresses, of grey human hair, these had been torn out by the roots. 
you are aware of the great force necessary in tearing thus from the head even twenty or thirty hairs together you saw the locks in question as well as myself their roots a hideous sight were clotted with fragments of the flesh of the scalp sure token of the prodigious power which had been exerted in uprooting perhaps half a million of hairs at a time the throat of the old lady was not merely cut but the head absolutely severed from the body the instrument was a mere razor i wish you also to look at the brutal ferocity of these deeds of the bruises upon the body of madame l'espanier i do not speak monsieur dumois and his worthy coadjutor monsieur etienne have pronounced that they were inflicted by some obtuse instrument and so far these gentlemen are very correct the obtuse instrument was clearly the stone pavement in the yard upon which the victim had fallen from the window which looked in upon the bed this idea however simple it may now seem escaped the police for the same reason that the breath of the shutters escaped them because by the affair of the nails their perceptions had been hermetically sealed against the possibility of the windows having ever been opened at all if now in addition to all these things you have properly reflected upon the odd disorder of the chamber we have gone so far as to combine the ideas of an agility astounding a strength superhuman a ferocity brutal a butchery without motive a grotesquerie in horror absolutely alien from humanity and a voice foreign in tone to the ears of men of many nations and devoid of all distinct or intelligible syllabification what result then has ensured what impression have i made upon your fancy i felt the creeping of the flesh as dupois asked me the question a madman i said has done this deed some raving maniac escaped from a neighboring maison de santé in some respects he replied your idea is not irrelevant but the voices of madmen even in their wildest paroxysms are never found to tally with that peculiar voice heard upon the stairs madmen are of some nation and their language however incoherent in its words has always the coherence of syllabification besides the hair of a madman is not such as i now hold in my hand i disentangled this little tuft from the rigidly clutched fingers of madame l'espanier tell me what you can make of it dupois i said completely unnerved this hair is most unusual this is no human hair i have not asserted that it is said he but before we decide this point i wish you to glance at the little sketch i have here traced upon this paper it is a facimile drawing of what has been described in one portion of the testimony as dark bruises and deep indentations of finger-nails upon the throat of mademoiselle l'espanier and in another by monsieur dumas and etienne as a series of livid spots evidently the impression of fingers you will perceive continued my friend spreading out the paper upon the table before us that this drawing gives the idea of a firm and fixed hold there is no slipping apparent each finger has retained possibly until the death of the victim the fearful grasp by which it originally embedded itself attempt now to place all your fingers at the same time in the respective impressions as you see them i made the attempt in vain we are possibly not giving this matter a fair trial he said 
the paper is spread out upon a plain surface but the human throat is cylindrical here is a billet of wood the circumference of which is about that of the throat wrap the drawing around it and try the experiment again i did so but the difficulty was even more obvious than before this i said is the mark of no human hand read now replied dupont this passage from cuvier it was a minute anatomical and generally descriptive account of the large fulvous orangutan of the east indian islands the gigantic stature the prodigious strength and activity the wild ferocity and the imitative propensities of these mammalia are sufficiently well known to all i understood the full horrors of the murder at once the description of the digits said i as i made an end of reading is in exact accordance with this drawing i see that no animal but an orangutan of the species here mentioned could have impressed the indentations as you have traced them this tuft of tawny hair too is identical in character with that of the beast of cuvier but i cannot possibly comprehend the particulars of this frightful mystery besides there were two voices heard in contention and one of them was unquestionably the voice of a frenchman true and you will remember an expression attributed almost unanimously by the evidence to this voice the expression mon dieu this under the circumstances has been justly characterized by one of the witnesses montani the confectioner as an expression of remonstrance or expostulation upon these two words therefore i have mainly built my hopes of a full solution of the riddle a frenchman was cognizant of the murder it is possible indeed it is far more than probable that he was innocent of all participation in the bloody transaction which took place the orangutan may have escaped from him he may have traced it to the chamber but under the agitating circumstances which ensured he could never have recaptured it it is still at large i will not pursue these guesses for i have no right to call them more since the shades of reflection upon which they are based are scarcely of sufficient depth to be appreciable by my own intellect and since i could not pretend to make them intelligible to the understanding of another we will call them guesses then and speak of them as such if the frenchman in question is indeed as i suppose innocent of this atrocity this advertisement which i left last night upon our return home at the office of le monde a paper devoted to the shipping interest and much sought by sailors will bring him to our residence he handed me a paper and i read thus caught in the bois de boulange early in the morning of the inst the morning of the murder a very large tawny orangutan of the bony species the owner who is ascertained to be a sailor belonging to a maltese vessel may have the animal again upon identifying it satisfactorily and paying a few charges arising from its capture and keeping call at no rue faubourg saint germain or troisième how was it possible i asked that you should know the man to be a sailor and belonging to a maltese vessel i do not know it said dupois i am not sure of it here however is a small piece of ribbon which from its form and from its greasy appearance has evidently been used in tying the hair in one of those long queues of which sailors are so fond moreover this knot is one which few besides sailors can tie 
and is peculiar to the Maltese. I picked the ribbon up at the foot of the lightning rod. It could not have belonged to either of the deceased. Now if, after all, I am wrong in my induction from this ribbon, that the Frenchman was a sailor belonging to a Maltese vessel, still I can have done no harm in saying what I did in the advertisement. If I am in error, he will merely suppose that I have been misled by some circumstance into which he will not take the trouble to inquire. But if I am right, a great point is gained. Cognizant, although innocent, of the murder, the Frenchman will naturally hesitate about replying to the advertisement about demanding the orangutan. He will reason thus, I am innocent, I am poor. My orangutan is of great value, to one in my circumstances a fortune of itself. Why should I lose it through idle apprehension of danger? Here it is, within my grasp. It was found in the Bois de Boulange, at a vast distance from the scene of that butchery. How can it ever be suspected that a brute beast could have done the deed? The police are at fault. They have failed to procure the slightest clue. Should they even trace the animal, it would be impossible to prove me cognizant of the murder, or to implicate me in guilt on account of that cognizance. Above all, I am known. The advertiser designates me as the possessor of the beast. I am not sure to what limit his knowledge may extend. Should I avoid claiming a property of so great value which it is known that I possess, I will render the animal at least liable to suspicion. It is not my policy to attract attention either to myself or to the beast. I will answer the advertisement, get the orangutan, and keep it close until this matter has blown over. At this moment we heard a step upon the stairs. Be ready, said Dupois, with your pistols, but neither use them nor show them until a signal from myself. The front door of the house had been left open, and a visitor had entered, without ringing, and advanced several steps upon the staircase. Now, however, he seemed to hesitate. Presently we heard him descending. Dupois was moving quickly to the door, when we again heard him coming up. He did not turn back a second time, but stepped up with decision and rapped at the door of our chamber. "'Come in,' said Dupois, in a cheerful and hearty tone. A man entered. He was a sailor, evidently, a tall, stout, and muscular-looking person, with a certain daredevil expression of countenance, not altogether unprepossessing. His face, greatly sunburnt, was more than half hidden by whisker and moustachio. He had with him a huge oaken cudgel, but appeared to be otherwise unarmed. He bowed awkwardly and bade us good evening, in French accents, which, although somewhat neufchatelish, were still sufficiently indicative of a Parisian origin. "'Sit down, my friend,' said Dupois. "'I suppose you have called about the orangutan. "'Upon my word, I almost envy you the possession of him. "'A remarkably fine, and no doubt a very valuable animal. "'How old do you suppose him to be?' "'The sailor drew a long breath, "'with the air of a man relieved of some intolerable burden, "'and then replied, in an assured tone, "'I have no way of telling, "'but he can't be more than four or five years old. "'Have you got him here?' Oh, no, we had no conveniences for keeping him here. He is at a livery stable in the Rue d'Auborg, just by. You can get him in the morning. Of course you are prepared to identify the property. To be sure I am, sir. I shall be sorry to part with him, said Dupois. I don't mean that you should be at all this trouble for nothing, sir. 
said the man. Couldn't expect to, and very willing to pay a reward for the finding of the animal. That is to say, anything in reason. Well, replied my friend, that is all very fair, to be sure. Let me think. What should I have? Oh, I will tell you. My reward shall be this. You shall give me all the information in your power about these murders in the Rue Morgue. Dupois said the last word in a very low tone, and very quietly. Just as quietly, too, he walked towards the door, locked it, and put the key in his pocket. He then drew a pistol from his bosom and placed it, without the least flurry, upon the table. The sailor's face flushed up as if he was struggling with suffocation. He started to his feet and grasped his cudgel, but the next moment he fell back into his seat, trembling violently and with the countenance of death itself. He spoke not a word. I pitied him from the bottom of my heart. My friend, said Dupois, in a kind tone, you are alarming yourself unnecessarily. You are indeed. We mean you no harm whatever. I pledge you the honour of a gentleman and of a Frenchman that we intend you no injury. I perfectly well know that you are innocent of the atrocities in the Rue Morgue. It will not do, however, to deny that you are in some measure implicated in them. From what I have already said, you must know that I have had means of information about this matter, means of which you could never have dreamed. Now the thing stands thus. You have done nothing which you could have avoided, nothing, certainly, which renders you culpable. You were not even guilty of robbery, when you might have robbed with impunity. You have nothing to conceal. You have no reason for concealment. On the other hand, you are bound by every principle of honour to confess all you know. An innocent man is now imprisoned, charged with that crime of which you can point out the perpetrator. The sailor had recovered his presence of mind, in a great measure, while Dupois uttered these words. But his original boldness of bearing was all gone. "'So help me God,' said he, after a brief pause. I will tell you all I know about this affair, but I do not expect you to believe one half I say. I would be a fool indeed if I did. Still, I am innocent, and I will make a clean breast if I die for it. What he stated was, in substance, this. He had lately made a voyage to the Indian archipelago. A party, of which he had formed one, landed at Boneo, and passed into the interior of an excursion of pleasure. Himself and a companion had captured the orangutan. This companion dying, the animal fell into his own exclusive possession. After great trouble, occasioned by the intractable ferocity of his captive during the home voyage, he at length succeeded in lodging it safely at his own residence in Paris, where, not to attract toward himself the unpleasant curiosity of his neighbours, he kept it carefully secluded, until such a time as it should be recovered from a wound in the foot, received from a splinter on board ship. His ultimate design was to sell it. Returning home, from some sailor's frolic the night, or rather in the morning of the murder, he found the beast occupying his own bedroom, into which it had broken from a closet adjoining, where it had been, as was thought, securely confined. Razor in hand, and fully leathered, it was sitting before a looking-glass, attempting the operation of shaving, 
in which it had no doubt previously watched its master through the keyhole of the closet. Terrified at the sight of so dangerous a weapon in the possession of an animal so ferocious and so well able to use it, the man, for some moments, was at a loss what to do. He had been accustomed, however, to quiet the creature, even in its fiercest moods, by the use of a whip, and to this he now resorted. Upon the sight of it, the orangutan sprang at once through the door of the chamber, down the stairs, and thence through a window, unfortunately open, into the street. The Frenchman followed in despair. The ape, raised still in hand, occasionally stopped to look back and gesticulate at its pursuer until the latter was nearly come up with it. It then again made off. In this manner, the chase continued for a long time. The streets were profoundly quiet, as it was nearly three o'clock in the morning, and passing down an alley in the rear of the Rue Morgue, the fugitive's attention was arrested by a light gleaming from the open window of Madame L'Espanier's chamber, in the fourth story of her house. Rushing to the building, it perceived the lightning-rod, clambered up with inconceivable agility, grasped the shutter, which was thrown fully back against the wall, and, by its means, swung itself directly upon the headboard of the bed. The whole feat did not occupy a minute. The shutter was kicked open again by the orangutan as it entered the room. The sailor, in the meantime, was both rejoiced and perplexed. He had strong hopes of now recapturing the brute, as it could scarcely escape from the trap into which it had ventured, except by the rod, where it might be intercepted as it came down. On the other hand, there was much cause for anxiety as to what it might do in the house. This latter reflection urged the man still to follow the fugitive. A lightning rod is ascended without difficulty, especially by a sailor, but, when he had arrived as high as the window, which lay far to his left, his career was stopped. The most that he could accomplish was to reach over so as to obtain a glimpse of the interior of the room. At this glimpse he nearly fell from his hold through excess of horror. Now it was that those hideous shrieks arose upon the night, which had startled from slumber the inmates of the Rue Morgue. Madame L'Espanier and her daughter, habited in their night-clothes, had apparently been occupied in arranging some papers in the iron chest already mentioned, which had been wheeled into the middle of the room. It was open, and its contents lay beside it on the floor. The victims must have been sitting with their backs toward the window, and, from the time elapsing between the ingress of the beast and the screams, it seems probable that it was not immediately perceived. The flapping, too, of the shutter would naturally have been attributed to the wind. As the sailor looked in, the gigantic animal had seized Madame L'Espanier by the hair, which was loose, as she had been combing it, and was flourishing the eraser about her face, in imitation of the motions of a barber. The daughter lay prostrate and motionless. She had swooned. The screams and struggles of the old lady, during which the hair was torn from her head, had the effect of changing the probably pacific purposes of the orangutan into those of wrath. With one determined sweep of its muscular arm, it nearly severed her head from her body. The sight of blood inflamed its anger into frenzy. Gnashing its teeth, and flashing fire from its eyes, it flew upon the body of the girl, and embedded its fearful talons into her throat, retaining its grasp until she expired. Its wandering and wild glances fell at this moment upon the head of the bed, over which the face of its master, rigid with horror, 
was just discernible. The fury of the beast, who no doubt bore still in mind the dreaded whip, was instantly converted into fear. Conscious of having deserved punishment, it seemed desirous of concealing its bloody deeds, and skipped about the chamber in an agony of nervous agitation, throwing down and breaking the furniture as it moved, and dragging the bed from the bedstead. In conclusion, it seized first the corpse of the daughter, and thrust it up the chimney, as it was found, which it immediately hurled through the window headlong. As the ape approached the casement, with its mutilated burden, the sailor shrank aghast to the rod, and, rather gliding than clambering down it, hurried at once home, dreading the consequences of the butchery, and gladly abandoning, in his terror, all solitude about the fate of the orangutan. The words heard by the party upon the staircase were the Frenchman's exclamations of horror and of fright, commingled with the fiendish jabberings of the brute. I have scarcely anything to add. The orangutan must have escaped from the chamber by the rod just before the break of the door. It must have closed the window as it passed through it. It was subsequently caught by the owner himself, who obtained it for a very large sum at the Chardis de Plantin. Le Don was instantly released, upon our narration of the circumstances, with some comments from Dupois, at the bureau of the prefect of police. This functionary, however well disposed to my friend, could not altogether conceal his chagrin at the turn which affairs had taken, and was fain to indulge in a sarcasm or two about the propriety of every person minding his own business. "'Let him talk,' said Dupois, who had not thought it necessary to reply. Let him discourse. It will ease his conscience. I am satisfied with having defeated him in his own castle. Nevertheless, that he failed in the solution of this mystery is by no means that matter for wonder which he supposes it, for, in truth, our friend the prefect is somewhat too cunning to be profound. In his wisdom is no stamen. It is all head and no body, like the pictures of the goddess Laverna, or, at best, all head and shoulders like a codfish. But he is a good creature, after all. I like him especially for one master-stroke of Kant, by which he has attained his reputation for ingenuity. I mean the way he has de nuire ce qui est, et d'expliquer ce qui n'est pas. Rousseau, Nouvelle Héloïse. End of the Murders in the Rue Morgue, Part 2 Recording by Christine in Oslo, Norway the 25th of September, 2011. Read by Bob Newfeld. The Works of Edgar Allan Poe, Raven Edition, Volume 1. The Mystery of Marie Roget, a sequel to The Murders in the Rue Morgue. There are ideal series of events which run parallel with the real ones. They rarely coincide. Men and circumstances generally modify the ideal train of events, so that it seems imperfect, and its consequences are equally imperfect. Thus, with the Reformation, instead of Protestantism, came Lutheranism. Novalis, Moral Ansichten. There are few persons, even among the calmest thinkers, 
who have not occasionally been startled into a vague yet thrilling half-credence in the supernatural by coincidences of so seemingly marvellous a character that as mere coincidences the intellect has been unable to receive them such sentiments are seldom thoroughly stifled unless by reference to the doctrine of chance or as it is technically termed the calculus of probabilities now this calculus is in its essence purely mathematical and thus we have the anomaly of the most rigidly exact in science applied to the shadow and spirituality of the most intangible in speculation the extraordinary details which i am now called upon to make public will be found to form as regards sequence of time the primary branch of a series of scarcely intelligible coincidences whose secondary or concluding branch will be recognized by all readers in the late murder of mary cecilia rogers at new york when in an article entitled the murders in the rue morgue i endeavored about a year ago to depict some very remarkable features in the mental character of my friend the chevalier c auguste dupin it did not occur to me that i should ever resume the subject this depicting of character constituted my design and this design was thoroughly fulfilled in the wild train of circumstances brought to instance dupin's idiosyncrasy i might have induced other examples but i should have proven no more late events however in their surprising developments have startled me into some further details which will carry with them the air of extorted confession hearing what i have lately heard it would be indeed strange should i remain silent in regard to what i both heard and saw so long ago upon the winding up of the tragedy involved in the deaths of madame l'espanaye and her daughter the chevalier dismissed the affair at once from his attention and relapsed into his old habits of moody reverie prone at all times to abstraction i readily fell in with his humour and continuing to occupy our chambers in the faubourg st germain we gave the future to the winds and slumbered tranquilly in the present weaving the dull world around us into dreams but these dreams were not altogether uninterrupted it may readily be supposed that the part played by my friend in the drama at the rue morgue had not failed of its impression upon the fancies of the parisian police with its emissaries the name of dupin had grown into a household word the simple character of those inductions by which he had disentangled the mystery never having been explained even to the prefect or to any other individual than myself of course it is not surprising that the affair was regarded as little less than miraculous or that the chevalier's analytical abilities acquired for him the credit of intuition his frankness would have led him to disabuse every inquirer of such prejudice but his indolent humor forbade all further agitation of a topic whose interest to himself had long ceased it thus happened that he found himself the cynosure of the political eye and the cases were not few in which attempt was made to engage his services at the prefecture one of the most remarkable instances was that of the murder of a young girl named marie roger this event occurred about two years after the atrocity in the rue morgue marie whose christian and family name will at once arrest attention from their resemblance to those of the unfortunate cigar girl was the only daughter of the widow estelle roger the father had died during the child's infancy and from the period of this death 
until within eighteen months before the assassination which forms the subject of our narrative, the mother and daughter had dwelt together in the Rue Pavé Saint-André, Madame there keeping a pension, assisted by Marie. Affairs went on thus, until the latter had attained her twenty-second year, when her great beauty attracted the notice of a perfumer, who occupied one of the shops in the basement of the Palais Royal, and whose custom lay chiefly among the desperate adventurers infesting that neighborhood. Monsieur Leblanc was aware of the advantages to be derived from the attendance of the fair Marie in his perfumery, and his liberal proposals were accepted eagerly by the girl, although with somewhat more of hesitation by Madame. The anticipations of the shopkeeper were realized, and his room soon became notorious through the charms of the sprightly grisette. She had been in his employ about a year, when her admirers were thrown into confusion by her sudden disappearance from the shop. Monsieur Leblanc was unable to account for her absence, and Madame Roger was distracted with anxiety and terror. The public papers immediately took up the theme, and the police were upon the point of making serious investigations, when one fine morning, after the lapse of a week, Marie, in good health but with a somewhat saddened air, made her reappearance at her usual counter in the perfumery. All inquiry, except that of a private character, was of course immediately hushed. Monsieur Leblanc professed total ignorance as before. Marie, with Madame, replied to all questions that the last week had been spent at the house of a relation in the country. Thus the affair died away, and was generally forgotten, for the girl, ostensibly to relieve herself from the impertinence of curiosity, soon bade a final adieu to the perfumer, and sought the shelter of her mother's residence in the Rue Pavé saint andre It was about five months after this return home that her friends were alarmed by her sudden disappearance for the second time. Three days elapsed, and nothing was heard of her. On the fourth, her corpse was found floating in the Seine near the shore which is opposite the quartier of the Rue Saint-André, and at a point not very distant from the secluded neighborhood of the Barrière du Roule. The atrocity of this murder, for it was at once evident that murder had been committed, the youth and beauty of the victim, and above all her previous notoriety, conspired to produce intense excitement in the minds of the sensitive Parisians. I can call to mind no similar occurrence producing so general and so intense an effect. For several weeks, in the discussion of this one absorbing theme, even the momentous political topics of the day were forgotten. The prefect made unusual exertions, and the powers of the whole Parisian police were, of course, tasked to the utmost extent. Upon the first discovery of the corpse, it was not supposed that the murderer would be able to elude for more than a very brief period the inquisition which was immediately set on foot. It was not until the expiration of a week that it was deemed necessary to offer a reward, and even then this reward was limited to a thousand francs. In the meantime, the investigation proceeded with vigor, if not always with judgment, and numerous individuals were examined to no purpose. While, owing to the continual absence of any clue to the mystery, the popular excitement greatly increased. At the end of the tenth day, it was thought advisable to double the sum originally proposed, and at length, the second week having elapsed without leading to any discoveries, and the prejudice which always exists in Paris against the police having given vent to itself in several serious émeutes, 
the prefect took it upon himself to offer the sum of twenty thousand francs for the conviction of the assassin or if more than one should prove to have been implicated for the conviction of any one of the assassins in the proclamation setting forth this reward a full pardon was promised to any accomplice who should come forward in evidence against his fellow and to the whole was appended wherever it appeared the private placard of a committee of citizens offering ten thousand francs in addition to the amount proposed by the prefecture the entire reward thus stood at no less than thirty thousand francs which will be regarded as an extraordinary sum when we consider the humble condition of the girl and the great frequency in large cities of such atrocities as the one described no one doubted now that the mystery of this murder would be immediately brought to light but although in one or two instances arrests were made which promised elucidation yet nothing was elicited which could implicate the parties suspected and they were discharged forthwith strange as it may appear the third week from the discovery of the body had passed and passed without any light being thrown upon the subject before even a rumor of the events which had so agitated the public mind reached the ears of dupin and myself engaged in researches which absorbed our whole attention it had been nearly a month since either of us had gone abroad or received a visitor or more than glanced at the leading political articles in one of the daily papers the first intelligence of the murder was brought to us by g in person he called upon us early in the afternoon of the thirteenth of july and remained with us until late in the night he had been piqued by the failure of all his endeavors to ferret out the assassins his reputation so he said with a peculiarly parisian air was at stake even his honor was concerned the eyes of the public were upon him and there was really no sacrifice which he would not be willing to make for the development of the mystery he concluded a somewhat droll speech with a compliment upon what he was pleased to term the tact of dupin and made him a direct and certainly a liberal proposition the precise nature of which i do not feel myself at liberty to disclose but which has no bearing upon the proper subject of my narrative the compliment my friend rebutted as best he could but the proposition he accepted at once although its advantages were altogether provisional this point being settled the prefect broke forth at once into explanations of his own views interspersing them with long comments upon the evidence of which latter we were not yet in possession he discoursed much and beyond doubt learnedly while i hazard an occasional suggestion as the night wore drowsily away dupin sitting steadily in his accustomed armchair was the embodiment of respectful attention he wore spectacles during the whole interview and an occasional signal glance beneath his green glasses sufficed to convince me that he slept not the less soundly because silently throughout the seven or eight leaden-footed hours which immediately preceded the departure of the prefect in the morning i procured at the prefecture a full report of all the evidence elicited and at the various newspaper offices a copy of every paper in which from first to last had been published any decisive information in regard to this sad affair freed from all that was positively disproved this mass of information stood thus marie roget left the residence of her mother in the rue pave saint andre 
about nine o'clock in the morning of Sunday, June the 22nd. In going out, she gave notice to a Monsieur Jacques Saint-Houstache, and to him only, of her intention to spend the day with an aunt who resided in the Rue des Drômes. The Rue des Drômes is a short and narrow but populous thoroughfare, not far from the banks of the river, and at a distance of some two miles, in the most direct course possible, from the pension of Madame Roger. Saint-Houstache was the accepted suitor of Marie, and lodged, as well as took his meals, at the pension. He was to have gone for his betrothed at dusk, and to have escorted her home. In the afternoon, however, it came on to rain heavily, and supposing that she would remain all night at her aunt's, as she had done under similar circumstances before, he did not think it necessary to keep his promise. As night drew on, Madame Roger, who was an infirm old lady, seventy years of age, was heard to express a fear that she would never see Marie again, but this observation attracted little attention at the time. On Monday it was ascertained that the girl had not been to the Rue des Drômes, and when the day elapsed without tidings of her, a tardy search was instituted at several points in the city and its environs. It was not, however, until the fourth day from the period of disappearance that anything satisfactory was ascertained respecting her. On this day, Wednesday the 25th of June, a Monsieur Beauvais, who, with a friend, had been making inquiries for Marie near the Barrier du Roule, on the shore of the Seine, which is opposite the Rue Pavé Saint-André, was informed that a corpse had just been towed ashore by some fishermen, who had found it floating in the river. Upon seeing the body, Beauvais, after some hesitation, identified it as that of the perfumery girl. His friend recognized it more promptly. The face was suffused with dark blood, some of which issued from the mouth. No foam was seen, as in the case of the merely drowned. There was no discoloration in the cellular tissue. About the throat were bruises and impressions of fingers. The arms were bent over on the chest and were rigid. The right hand was clenched, the left partially open. On the left wrist were two circular excoriations, apparently the effect of ropes, or of a rope in more than one volution. A part of the right wrist also was much chafed, as well as the back throughout its extent, but more especially at the shoulder blades. In bringing the body to the shore, the fisherman had attached to it a rope, but none of the excoriations had been affected by this. The flesh of the neck was much swollen. There were no cuts apparent or bruises which appeared the effect of blows. A piece of lace was found tied so tightly around the neck as to be hidden from sight. It was completely buried in the flesh, and was fasted by a knot which lay just under the left ear. This alone would have sufficed to produce death. The medical testimony spoke confidently of the virtuous character of the deceased. She had been subjected, it said, to brutal violence. The corpse was in such condition when found that there could have been no difficulty in its recognition by friends. The dress was much torn and otherwise disordered and the outer garment, a slip, about a foot wide, had been torn upward from the bottom hem to the waist, but not torn off. It was wound three times round the waist, and secured by a sort of hitch in the back. The dress immediately beneath the frock was of fine muslin, and from this a slip eighteen inches wide had been entirely torn out, torn very evenly and with great care, 
It was found around her neck, fitting loosely and secured with a hard knot. Over this muslin slip and the slip of lace, the strings of a bonnet were attached, the bonnet being appended. The knot by which the strings of the bonnet were fastened was not a lady's, but a slip or sailor's knot. After the recognition of the corpse, it was not, as usual, taken to the morgue, this formality being superfluous, but hastily interred, not far from the spot at which it was brought ashore. Through the exertions of Beauvais, the matter was industriously hushed up, as far as possible, and several days had elapsed before any public emotion resulted. A weekly paper, however, at length took up the theme. The corpse was disinterred, and a re-examination instituted. But nothing was elicited beyond what was already noted. The clothes, however, were now submitted to the mother and friends of the deceased, and fully identified as those worn by the girl upon leaving home. Meantime, the excitement increased hourly. Several individuals were arrested and discharged. Saint-Hustache fell especially under suspicion, and he failed, at first, to give an intelligible account of his whereabouts during the Sunday on which Marie left home. Subsequently, however, he submitted to Monsieur G. affidavits, accounting satisfactorily for every hour of the day in question. As time passed and no discovery ensued, a thousand contradictory rumors were circulated and journalists busied themselves in suggestions. Among these, the one which attracted the most notice was the idea that Marie Roget still lived, that the corpse found in the Seine was that of some other unfortunate. It will be proper that I submit to the reader some passages which embody the suggestion alluded to. These passages are literal translations from L'Etoile, a paper conducted in general with much ability. Mademoiselle Roger left her mother's house on Sunday morning, June the 22nd, with the ostensible purpose of going to see her aunt, or some other connection, in the Rue des Drômes. From that hour nobody is proved to have seen her. There is no trace or tidings of her at all. There has no person whatever come forward so far who saw her at all on that day after she left her mother's door. Now, though we have no evidence that Marie Roger was in the land of the living after nine o'clock on Sunday, June the 22nd, we have proof that up to that hour she was alive. On Wednesday noon, at twelve, a female body was discovered afloat on the shore of the Barrier du Roule. This was, even if we presume that Marie Roger was thrown into the river within three hours after she left her mother's house, only three days from the time she left her home, three days to an hour but it is folly to suppose that the murder, if murder was committed on her body, could have been consummated soon enough to have enabled her murderers to throw the body into the river before midnight. Those who are guilty of such horrid crimes choose darkness rather than light. Thus we see that if the body found in the river was that of Marie Bourget, it could only have been in the water two and a half days, or three at the outside. All experience has shown that drowned bodies, or bodies thrown into the river immediately after death by violence, require from six to ten days for decomposition to take place to bring them to the top of the water. Even where a cannon is fired over a corpse, and it rises before at least five or six days' immersion, it sinks again if left alone. Now, we ask, what was there in this cave to cause a departure from the ordinary cause of nature? 
if the body had been kept in its mangled state on shore until Tuesday night, some trace would have been found on shore of the murderers. It is a doubtful point, also, whether the body would be so soon afloat, even were it thrown in after having been dead two days. And furthermore, it is exceedingly improbable that any villains who had committed such a murder as is here supposed would have thrown the body in without weight to sink it, when such a precaution could have so easily been taken. The editor here proceeds to argue that the body must have been in the water not three days merely, but at least five times three days, because it was so far decomposed that Beauvais had great difficulty in recognizing it. This latter point, however, was fully disproved. I continue the translation. What, then, are the facts on which M. Beauvais says that he has no doubt the body was that of Marie Roget? He ripped up the gown sleeve, and says he found marks which satisfied him of the identity. The public generally supposed those marks to have consisted of some description of scars. He rubbed the arm and found hair upon it, something as indefinite, we think, as can readily be imagined, as little conclusive as finding an arm in the sleeve. M. Beauvais did not return that night, but sent word to Madame Roger at seven o'clock on Wednesday evening that an investigation was still in progress respecting her daughter. If we allow that Madame Roger, from her age and grief, could not go over, which is allowing a great deal, there certainly must have been someone who would have thought it worth while to go over and attend the investigation, if they thought the body was that of Marie. Nobody went over. There was nothing said or heard about the matter in the Rue Pavé saint Andrea that reached even the occupants of the same building. Monsieur Saint-Eustache, the lover and intended husband of Marie, who boarded in her mother's house, deposes that he did not hear of the discovery of the body of his intended until the next morning, when Monsieur Beauvais came into his chamber and told him of it. For an item of news like this, it strikes us it was very coolly received. In this way the journal endeavored to create the impression of an apathy on the part of the relatives of Marie inconsistent with the supposition that these relatives believed the corpse to be hers. Its insinuations amount to this, that Marie, with the connivance of her friends, had absented herself from the city for reasons involving a charge against her chastity, and that these friends, upon the discovery of a corpse in the Seine, somewhat resembling that of the girl, had availed themselves with the opportunity to impress the public with the belief of her death, but L'Etoile was again over-hasty. It was distinctly proved that no apathy, such as was imagined, existed, that the old lady was exceedingly feeble, and so agitated as to be able to attend any duty, that Saint-Eustache, so far from receiving the news coolly, was distracted by grief, and bore himself so frantically, that Monsieur Beauvais prevailed upon a friend and relative to take charge of him, and prevent his attending the examination at the disinterment. Moreover, although it was stated by L'Etoile that the corpse was reinterred at the public expense, that an advantageous offer of private sculpture was absolutely declined by the family, and that no member of the family attended the ceremonial, although, I say, all this was asserted by L'Etoile in furtherance of the impression it designed to convey, yet all this was satisfactorily disproved. In a subsequent number of the paper, an attempt was made to throw suspicion upon Beauvais himself. The editor says, Now, then, a change comes over the matter. We are told that on one occasion, 
while a Madame B. was at Madame Roger's house, Monsieur Beauvais, who was going out, told her that a gendarme was expected there, and that she, Madame B., must not say anything to the gendarme until he returned, but let the matter be for him. In the present posture of affairs, Monsieur Beauvais appears to have the whole matter looked up in his head. A single step cannot be taken without Monsieur Beauvais, for, go which way you will, you run against him. For some reason he determined that nobody shall have anything to do with the proceedings but himself, and he has elbowed the male relatives out of the way, according to their representations, in a very singular manner. He seems to have been very much averse to permitting the relatives to see the body. By the following fact some color was given to the suspicion thus thrown upon Beauvais. A visitor at his office, a few days prior to the girl's disappearance and during the absence of its occupant, had observed a rose in the keyhole of the door, and the name Marie inscribed upon a slate which hung near at hand. The general impression, so far as we are enabled to glean it from the newspapers, seemed to be that Marie had been the victim of a gang of desperadoes, that by these she had borne across the river, maltreated and murdered. Le Commercial, however, a print of extensive influence, was earnest in combating this popular idea. I quote a passage or two from its column. We are persuaded that pursuit has hitherto been on a false scent, so far as it has been directed to the Barrier du Roule. It is impossible that a person so well known to thousands as this young woman was should have passed three blocks without someone having seen her, and any one who saw her would have remembered it, for she interested all who knew her. It was when the streets were full of people when she went out. It is impossible that she could have gone to the Barrier du Roule or to the Rue de Drome without being recognized by a dozen persons. Yet no one has come forward who saw her outside of her mother's door, and there is no evidence, except the testimony concerning her expressed intentions, that she did go out at all. Her gown was torn, bound round her, and tied, and by that the body was carried as a bundle. If the murder had been committed at the Barrière du Roule, there would have been no necessity for any such arrangement. The fact that the body was found floating near the barrière is no proof as to where it was thrown into the water. A piece of one of the unfortunate girl's petticoats, two feet long and one foot wide, was torn out and tied under her chin around the back of her head, probably to prevent screams. This was done by fellows who had no pocket-handkerchief. A day or two before the prefect called upon us, however, some important information reached the police, which seemed to overthrow, at least, the chief portion of the Le Commercial's argument. Two small boys, sons of a Madame de Luc, while roaming among the woods near the Barrière du Roule, chanced to penetrate a close thicket, within which there were three or four large stones, forming a kind of seat, with a back and a footstool. On the upper stone lay a white petticoat, on the second a silk scarf. A parasol, gloves, and a pocket-handkerchief were also found. The handkerchief bore the name Marie Roger. Fragments of dress were discovered on the brambles around. The earth was trampled, the bushes were broken, and there was every evidence of a struggle. Between the thicket and the river, the fences were found taken down, and the ground bore evidence of some heavy burthen having been dragged along it. A weekly paper, Le Soleil, had the following comments upon this discovery. 
comments which merely echoed the sentiment of the whole Parisian press. The things had evidently been there at least three or four weeks. They were all mildewed down hard with the action of the rain, and stuck together from mildew. The grass had grown around and over some of them. The silk on the parasol was strong, but the threads of it were run together within. The upper part, where it had been doubled and folded, was all mildewed and rotten, and tore on its being open. The pieces of her frock torn out by the bushes were about three inches wide and six inches long. One part was the hem of the frock, and it had been mended. The other piece was part of the skirts, not the hem. They looked like strips torn off, and were on the thorn-bush, about a foot from the ground. There can be no doubt, therefore, that the spot of this appalling outrage has been discovered. Consequent upon this discovery, new evidence appeared. Madame de Luc testified that she keeps a roadside inn not far from the bank of the river, opposite the Barrier du Roule. The neighborhood is secluded, particularly so. It is the usual Sunday resort of blackguards from the city who cross the river in boats. About three o'clock, in the afternoon of the Sunday in question, a young girl arrived at the inn accompanied by a young man of dark complexion. The two remained here for some time. On their departure, they took the road to some thick woods in the vicinity. Madame de Luc's attention was called to the dress worn by the girl, on account of its resemblance to one borne by a deceased relative. A scarf was particularly noticed. Soon after the departure of the couple, a gang of miscreants made their appearance, behaved boisterously, ate and drank without making payment, followed in the route of the young man and girl, returned to the inn about dusk, and recrossed the river as if in great haste. End of the Mystery of Marie Roget, Part One